So last week, we spoke of this greatest love that Jesus shared with us, right? The greatest love is that we should lay down our lives for a friend. And in that passage from John 15, Jesus also shared with us that these disciples were no longer slaves of his, but that they were friends, that they had been invited into a unique relationship with Christ. And that's a beautiful passage to preach, right? This love of Christ that, that goes out to his people that then uh, takes root in the lives of these people and becomes a part of who they are and they begin to share it with one another and it demonstrates that they're followers of Christ because they are, they are sharing that love with one another. And Jesus inviting them into his life and saying, you're no longer slaves, but you are my friends. And it's just this greatest love. This week we'll talk about the greatest hate. And this one's not as fun to preach. <laughs> and this one is not as fun to listen to either, I suspect. It's nice to hear about loving others. It's nice to be called a friend of Jesus. But today we have to talk about a very, very hard reality that comes from the lips of Jesus in the very same discourse where he has just now shared with his disciples these beautiful realities. And this reality is this, friends. Genuine Christ followers can expect both joys and sorrows in life. We can expect both. Both joy in knowing Christ and the sorrows that come along with that. One of the greatest joys is to be called a friend of Jesus. One of the greatest joys is to know Christ. In fact, I might even just elevate my language and say, the greatest joy is to know Christ. I speak that from experience and not just from reading the, the scriptures, but from four decades of following Christ. I can tell you here today, friends, I would make the same decision now in a nanosecond to follow Christ with all the joys and all the hardships that have accompanied that. <clears throat> It's the greatest joy in life. One of the greatest sorrows is to be hated for our allegiance to Jesus. Nobody likes that. Nobody looks forward to that. We may talk about that and say, I don't care, but we do care. No one wants to be hated because of their allegiance to somebody else. But both of these will be true in our lives if we have genuinely come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Our culture <clears throat> tells us our culture tells us that if we will just play along, if we will agree with its understanding of the world, our place in it, and try not to, to force unconventional religious ideas on a very open-minded society, that we may live at peace with it. Now, friends, I have to say this just as clearly and as boldly as I can. We must know that this is a lie. This is a lie. Our culture has no intention of living at peace with us as long as we choose Jesus over our culture. It has no intention of living at peace with us. Jesus, in our text for today out of John 15, is not describing a situation that was unknown. He knew it. He knew persecution. These disciples would know persecution. They would see it played out in Jesus' life in the most graphic way over the next 24 hours. This was as real as it could possibly be for Jesus and for the disciples. And they would live out these realities for the rest of their lives. In this very discourse, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will soon. In this very same upper room discourse that we're in the midst of in John chapter 15, Jesus will say to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation." Now, here's what Jesus meant when he said, in this world you will have tribulation. He meant, in this world 
you will have tribulation. That's what he meant. He said it and he meant it. And then he lived it. And the disciples, although they would spend some time in fear, would regain their courage, friends, and they would live this out the rest of their lives as well. We must stand fast, friends, with our brother Jesus. We must stand fast with him, and we must accept whatever comes our way due to our allegiance to Christ. Let's learn that today in our passage from John chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 18 and read through verse 25, not quite completing this chapter 15 today. John chapter 15. And so again, if you're new here today, you're new to your Bibles We've been in the Gospel of John for some time. The Gospel of John is the fourth of four Gospels in the New Testament. The New Testament is about two-thirds of your way through your Bible if you're new to the Bible. And we're in the, the Gospel of John. So Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. And we're in John chapter 15 today. And we're going to pick up here in verse 18. Let's hear the words of Jesus to us today, friends. Let's stand. Let's honor him as we do that. <clears throat> Jesus says this to his disciples, and... I trust to us as well. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so the world hates Jesus, friends. And by extension, the world will hate and did hate his disciples. And by extension, as we extrapolate this out, the world hates the disciples of the disciples, those of us who have come to know Christ through the testimony of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Now recall for the For the Apostle John, when he speaks of the world, he's talking about everything that has been encompassed in our cultures and societies, not just in America, of course, but throughout time, all the the worldly influences of all the cultures and all the societies that really have existed throughout time, but certainly from the time of Jesus onward, John speaks of the world. And it's all that that has set itself up against the knowledge of God and against the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that influence, as it were, that sets itself up against all that God has said through Christ. It is the influence that we sense almost every single day of our lives, if not every day of our lives. It is the prevailing current. It's the spirit of the age, the scriptures say sometimes. It is the world. And for John, if you'll remember way back to John chapter 3, for John, the world refers not so much to how big the planet is, but to how bad the planet is, how bad those who make up this world are. So, for God so loved the world is a statement of of an, an astonishing reality for John, not so much that this world is a really big place, and God loves this world, this big earth of ours. 
but it's a statement of amazement that God loves this world, the people who have aligned themselves against him, who have hated him. That's what's amazing in John 3, 16, that God so loved this world, these people, you, me, and everybody else who's inhabited this planet outside of Jesus Christ. That's the world for John. It is that which has set itself up against the power of God and the, and the hope of the gospel. It is all those who make up that prevailing thought in every culture that has ever existed. And so Jesus now is going to share with his disciples, I think, four fundamental realities concerning the opposition that they can expect. Jesus is sending them out on a mission, remember? He's sending them out on a mission. This upper room discourse is Jesus preparing his disciples to go out on mission. And now he's preparing them. He's told them, I love you and I want you to love each other. In fact, I command you to love one another. Greater love has no one than this that they would lay down their lives for a friend and you are my friends, he said. I don't call you slaves anymore. Now, after he said these beautiful and encouraging things and has drawn the disciples close to him, he now says, here's some hard, hard, hard realities. People hate me. This world hates me. This world's going to hate you as well. And he's going to give them, I think, four fundamental realities related to, to this truth that he's going to share with them. Now listen, as Jesus shares with his disciples, we have to understand that there's a unique setting here. These disciples are going to watch Jesus now go to a cross. They're going to watch him be butchered, literally butchered. They're going to watch him die, and then they're going to wonder what in the world just happened. And they're going to run scared for a while. And then Jesus will come back from the dead. They won't have expected it until after it happens, and then they'll start putting pieces together. And then their courage will come back again. And then they will begin to engage in their own ministries and their own work of sharing the gospel, and they will know the hatred of the world, and they will know the persecution of the world, and many of them will die for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. There's a unique setting here for these men, but we need to understand that that setting goes out from them, that it will speak not just of them, but to all of us who have come to know Christ throughout the ages through the testimony of these apostles. And so although we may not put ourselves literally, as it were, into the footsteps of these disciples and say everything Jesus said to them is going to, exact and exactly, it's going to happen exactly the same way for us, we may be able to say, I think, with biblical authority that the prevailing concepts that Jesus is saying to the disciples, we need to take and we need to appropriate in our lives as well. Therefore, there's four fundamental realities we should be aware of. Number one, this opposition from the world is inevitable, friends. It is inevitable. Nobody who genuinely comes to know Jesus Christ is exempt from this. This opposition is real, and this opposition is inevitable. Verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus says. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is inevitable. They have persecuted Jesus, therefore they will persecute you. They have hated Jesus, therefore they will hate you. This is inevitable for the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, just one quick little caveat. You may remember if you were here last week, we made a, a strong point, because I think Jesus makes a strong point of saying to the disciples, you're not slaves anymore. It's translated in the ESV that I read from today, English Standard Version, as servant. I don't think it's the strongest translation there. I think it should be translated slave. That's exactly what it means, a slave. 
It's from the Greek word that means a slave. Now, certainly servant gives us a general concept of what that means here. But Jesus tells the disciples, I'm not calling you slaves anymore. I'm inviting you now in as friends, right? But look what he does here in the exact same discourse. He now says, a slave is not greater than the master. He goes right back to the terminology again. Why? Why? I think part of the reason he says, remember what I said to you. Jesus has said this to them before, right? Don't expect to be treated any differently than I, than I am. You're slaves, right? You're my servants. You're my disciples, and I'm your master. And if they treat me this way, they'll treat you this way. These are words that Jesus had used in the past. I also help things that help us to, to realize that it doesn't mean we can never use the terminology of Jesus as a king and us as servants ever again. That's not what Jesus was saying. He is still a king, and we are still servants, right? This is how Paul will designate himself in most of his letters in the New Testament. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. So we, not, we need not flee from the language, but we need to understand that there is a new relationship that has been built in here. And so although Jesus has said, you're my, you're my friends and I no longer call you slaves, he has no problem in the next sentence or two, at least if this is recorded as it happened chronologically, in saying a slave is not greater than his master. And by slave, he means you, my disciples, and by master, he means me, right? Not me, Jim, but Jesus, right? And so, and so he says, you need to understand they're not going to treat you differently than they treated me. If you are really my slaves, right? If you are really my servants, if you are really my friends, then you must expect the inevitable, and that is that there will come these difficult times. Listen to what Jesus says here recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus will say this to the disciples multiple times, and he will end it by saying, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is a matter of holding fast to Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. In the midst of being hated, Jesus says, you hold fast to my name. You hold fast in the midst of these things, not because I promise you I won't put you through them. I promise you, you will go through them. Now I expect you to be there on the other side, and I will be with you through the whole in a trial, or because I'm your friend, and friends don't abandon, abandon one another, and therefore I've called you into this vital relationship. But I tell you now, as he will say later in this discourse that we will touch upon, I tell you this now, because I don't want you to fall away. I want you to know that I am being completely upfront and honest with you. I think Jesus might even say to them, it's not recorded, and I'm not saying he did say it. I'm simply saying I think the intent here is to say, I don't want you later on saying, why didn't he tell us it was going to be like this? Because the answer will be, he did multiple times tell us it was going to be exactly like this. It is inevitable and it is due to their association with the name of Jesus Christ. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute you, friends, as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a promise from Jesus to us. Right? He's telling us the realities of life in this world. If we are truly separated out from the world and followers of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the good news in the midst of this, right? There's a kernel of good news. Did you see the kernel of good news in the midst of this? 
If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But if they listened to me, they'll also listen to you, right? right? There are people who will come to know Christ, right? The disciples' testimony will be effective. People will come to know Christ. And so we, may not, we, we, we need not fear constantly being badgered and beaten throughout life. There will be some who will hear the gospel, will respond to the gospel, and they will obey the words of Jesus. We're not on this journey by ourselves, friends. The poet John Donne said, no man or woman is an island. And that is true. None of us is an island. We're in this together. And Jesus is speaking to this, to the 11, and maybe some others that are in the group too. He's waited, remember, till Judas is gone. He's not part of this equation anymore. He's not a friend of Jesus. He's not a part of the equation. He's invited the 11 in collectively and said, I'm going to be with you in this. And you're going to be together in this. And there will be some who will hear and believe, but know that there will be many who don't. They will persecute you because they persecuted me. It is inevitable, and it is due to their association with Jesus, and it is due to the world's ignorance. And friends, this, of course, the world ruffles its feathers at this, right? Individuals within the world ruffle their feathers at this. You're saying we're ignorant. And Jesus is saying, you're ignorant, You don't know the truth. You've rejected the truth. You've willfully rejected the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it has left you in ignorance, he says. Verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They do not know Jesus, and therefore they do not know God the Father. Because you cannot know God the Father unless you come to God the Father through the Son, Reject the Son, you reject the Father. And therefore, in ignorance, they have rejected these things. Listen, this world will tell us time and time again, we know God, we understand Jesus, and the fact of the matter is, is they do not. They cannot. They are steeped in ignorance. They cannot know because it has not been revealed to them because they have rejected the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the scriptures reveal God to us, not human wisdom, not human ingenuity. They can offer us nothing about the truths of God. It is God in his word that reveals God to us, not the ingenuity and the smarts of this world. Listen to what Paul says when he writes to the Thessalonians. The church of Thessalonica was under incredible persecution when Paul wrote to them in the first century. Paul himself had established the church in Thessalonica and could only stay for three or four weeks until he was run out of town. And I mean literally run out of town. He was persecuted and badgered along with his his, uh, traveling companions and they had to flee Thessalonica. Now he writes back to the Thessalonians in the midst of their struggles and persecution and he says some hard things. Listen to what he says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's why there's an ignorance there. That's why there's a deception there. Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and have the blinders taken off so that they can see reality for what it is. Therefore, now here's the hard part, 
That we can understand, right? They refused to believe the truth and so be saved. And we say, well, it's, it's, their, it's their responsibility, right? They're deceived because they've chosen to be deceived. That's true, but there's another side to the equation. Listen to the other side to the equation. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's a two-sided effect. We refuse and we refuse and we refuse to know the truth and so be saved. There's a deception there by our enemy and by the forces in the heavenly realms, the evil forces in the heavenly realms, the demonic forces, friends, and the prevailing thought pattern of this world that the scriptures call the spirit of this age. And in the midst of that comes finally, at some point, and I don't know when that point comes for the individual, the hand of God to say, the delusion is now real for you. You will now believe the lie. You will believe what is patently false and so be condemned by that because you've reveled in your pleasures. You have decided that you want unrighteousness more than righteousness. You've rejected the light and you have turned instead to the darkness. And so it is due to the world's ignorance, friends. It is due to their association with Christ, the disciples and you and I, and it is inevitable. And finally, it wells up from hatred of the Father and the Son. I had somebody just between these two services who came up to me and said, you kept using the word hate and that's not appropriate. And I just got to say, friends, you got to take that one up with Jesus because he's the one using the word over and over again. He's the one saying the word over and over and over again. This isn't a strong dislike. Jesus isn't saying, if they really didn't have an affection for me, they probably won't have an affection for you. He's not saying if they're not inclined to feel warm thoughts about me, they'll probably not be inclined to feel warm thoughts about you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they hate me, and they will hate you too. This is deep. This is rooted in fear and ignorance. This is rooted in deception. This is rooted in, in violence towards what is true and what is right and what is noble and what brings hope and what brings peace in this world. Jesus is the one using the word hate here. And he's telling the disciples the truth. It wells up from a hatred for the Father. And it is shown to the Son who is now the incarnate Son of God. And it will be, Jesus said, shown to you as well. It runs deep, friends. This is not a dislike. This is a deep and abiding hatred. To love Jesus is to love the Father. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father. So what do we do? What do the disciples do? Well, I think Jesus tells them what to do. He says, be on guard. Be on guard. And this is a call for us today as well. Be on guard, brothers and sisters. Here's the realities of life in this world. Here's the reality of life in Christ if you, have, if you have, have made that decision to genuinely follow Jesus Christ. And I think Jesus has already said there'll be some who say I've made a decision to follow Christ, but their love will grow cold. It will be demonstrated over time, right? Nobody wants to fight the prevailing winds their whole lives. You can't do it outside of a relationship with Christ. Your love will grow cold. Nobody can do this, not over the long haul. The disciples can't do it over the long haul. Judas couldn't do it over the long haul. They need Christ. 
They need to be a brother with Jesus. They need to know that they are a friend of Christ. They need to know that he is with them in the midst of this. They need to know that he's warned them in advance. This shouldn't catch you by by surprise. This should not catch us off guard, friends. When people of this world say, you're the liar. Jesus isn't like that. Not my Jesus. Not my God. Like I told you the story one time, being in Israel with a, a gentleman who had been persecuted Uh, a Christian there in the Middle East and was sharing about all these persecutions and sharing about the struggles and sharing about how it was coming from a people who had set themselves up against the gospel and against Christ and that there was essentially a spiritual warfare that was going on and someone in the group, a seminary student, said, my God would not allow that. And the person said, it could be that your God isn't God. Right? It could be that the God we've decided to follow is not God. It's not the true God. And if that's the case, friends, our love will grow cold and we will turn away from this Jesus. We will turn away. Jesus doesn't want that for you if you know him. He doesn't want it for his disciples. He says, be on guard. In verse 25, he says, they hated me without cause. He doesn't say they hated me without reason. They got all kinds of reasons to hate Jesus, but they don't have a cause. At the root of it, Jesus has come to be the light of the world. There is no cause to hate him, but the world hates him anyway. He's simply quoting from King David, who had all kinds of reasons for people to hate David. Right? But in his relationship with God, he said, they hated me without cause. Jesus is simply taking that. David says that actually in two of his psalms, psalms of lament, at how difficult life had become for him, even as the king of Israel. And Jesus takes David's words and he puts them into his own mouth and says, this must, be, this must bear witness. It must be true. Right? They've hated me without a cause. Now listen, friends, people do not hate Jesus made in their own image. They love that Jesus. That's, a, that's an easy Jesus to love. Right? The Jesus they do not love is the Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures. That's the Jesus that this world hates. Make Jesus in your own image and all is well. All is fine with this Jesus. All is fine with this God. This is the Jesus who never judges. This is the Jesus who who is all about justice and equity. But this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Not that the Jesus of the Bible wasn't about justice. He was absolutely about justice. Biblical justice. But make him in your own image, and anybody can get along with this Jesus. He's very palatable. It's the Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures that are rejected and hated. It's the Jesus who speaks in our text for today that is hated. And they were hated first and foremost by the Jews. We've talked about this, right? This is not an anti-Semitic term. This is Jesus speaking about his own people and saying, by and large, the Jews have hated me and they have rejected me. He's not speaking about that ubiquitously. He's not saying every single Jew. There's some Jews right there listening to him who are his friends. They're the disciples. There are many other Jews who will come to know Christ, right? Some of them of the priestly class will come to know Christ. But as a whole, the Jews have rejected Jesus and they will persecute the disciples of Jesus for about 40 years until Rome will come down and put the hammer down on the people of Israel and crush them. And then the persecution gets picked up by Rome. And now the Romans hate the followers of Jesus Christ 
And for those of you who want a short little history lesson, you're going to get one, okay? Here's why primarily the Romans hated your brothers and sisters in Christ in the early church. Number one, they refused to exalt Caesar as God. The rulers of Rome were living gods to the Romans. They were the highest part of the pantheon of all the gods. And therefore, if you refused to exalt Caesar as a living God, you were an insurrectionist. You were rising up against the Roman Empire, and nobody wanted to rise up against the Roman Empire. And the Romans didn't want anybody rising up against the Roman Empire. My goodness, they're fighting all kinds of wars on the frontier to hold fast and hang on to the Roman Empire. They certainly don't want insurrectionists from the inside. And these Christians are insurrectionists. They will not take the pinch of incense. They will not put it in the fire. And they will not declare publicly, Caesar is Lord. And because they refused to do that, not all of them, some of them did it, but those who genuinely had come to place their faith in Christ refused. And the Romans, and we have this written in extra-biblical documentation, some of them, at least the leaders, are saying, why not? We don't even tell you you have to believe it. You just got to do it. Go in there. Go into the temple. Take the pinch of incense. Put it in the fire. Say, Caesar is Lord, and go on with your life. No one will bother you until the next year when you need to do it again and demonstrate your allegiance to Caesar. But these Christians, at least some of them, refused, and therefore they were hated. They were insurrectionists. They were cannibals who practiced sexual immorality. They did what we're going to do right here today. They shared in communion. And to many in the Roman Empire, sharing in communion meant what? It meant eating flesh and drinking blood. They were cannibals. They go out to these secret places and they have an agape feast, a love feast. Now to a Roman, what does that mean? Forgive me for being so blunt. It means an orgy. It means these Christians are going out, they're having these sexual, sexually immoral, and really to be sexually immoral to a Roman, you really got to be immoral. They're being sexually immoral, and then they're, they're cannibalizing each other. They're eating each other's flesh and drinking their blood. Now, the, the educated Romans, they, didn't, they knew better than this. They didn't believe this, but amongst the masses, they believed this was true. It was perpetuated. Therefore, these Christians are cannibals who practice sexual immorality. They're looking for a hope outside of Rome. Who's that hope? They're expecting a king. Who's that king? It's Jesus. He's coming back again. The Romans don't want a king coming back again. They've got a king, and so they're hoping for something outside of the empire. They're tampering with family relationships. This is true. Some people were coming to know Christ and others were not. They were being rejected by their families, and they were holding fast to Jesus anyway. They were breaking up families, and there is some truth in that. Families were being broken up because people were coming to know Christ and believe in Christ and saying, it's more important than even my familial relationships. And so the Romans didn't like to see that. And they cared for Romans better than Romans cared for Romans. Listen to what the Emperor Julian said in the fourth century. These atheists, Christians, they don't believe in the pantheon of gods, that makes them atheists. These atheists have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who's a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render to them. He's saying this as the emperor of Rome and says, these Christians are taking better care of us than we do. There's a plague. Who stays behind? 
Not the Romans. The Christians stay behind. There's poor. Who's taking care of our poor? Not the Romans. It's the Christians who are doing that. They're serving people. They're caring for people. They're loving people. And because of that, they're hated because they are showing a bad light on the Romans themselves. So the Romans hate these Christians. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian in the first century, said, they are a people hated for their crimes. The mob calls them Christians. Suetonius, who was also a Roman historian, says, they are a race of men who belong to a new and evil superstition. They're bringing into the empire something that they do not want, and therefore they're hated. Jesus shined light into the world. Friends, he did things that nobody else ever did. I got to stress this to you one more time because Jesus tells that to us one more time. Jesus did things that nobody ever did. And I know some of you disagree with me on this, but I'm just going to say it plainly. And nobody raising people from the dead on their own power. There's nobody giving sight to the blind. I do believe that God is a God of power and still works mightily among people. But there's nobody out there who has a power of healing and raising from the dead and who is out there healing people and bringing people and putting appendages on people who have lost appendages and giving sight to people who were born blind outside of medical interventions. Jesus did what nobody else did. Jesus said, because I did what nobody else does, they hate me. If a lot of people were doing this, there's no reason to hate Jesus. A lot of people do this stuff. The fact of the matter is that nobody does this stuff. Jesus does this stuff, and he's hated because he does these things. He's shining light into the world, and nobody likes to have light shown into the world. Look what Jesus says here in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I don't know how much more plain Jesus can be there. This is our world. This is Jesus' world. People don't come to the light because they don't like the light. The light says, look what's going on in your life. And we say, I don't want people to know what's going on in my life. Or I like to do what's going on in my life. I don't want anybody shining a light on that and saying it's not wrong, that's not right. And so they hate that which shines light upon their actions. So do we sometimes, don't we, as Christians? We don't want the light shine, right? Who wants everybody in this room to know what you were thinking about this week? Who wants everybody to know what you were looking at on your computer this week? Who wants everybody to know what you're watching on television, what you're saying to your spouse, what you're saying to your children, what you're saying to your parents, kids? Who wants that stuff laid out there? Nobody wants that stuff laid out there. Jesus lays it out there, and he's hated for that. So friends, we cannot say we've not been warned. We have been warned time and time again by Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you as well. This has been the ongoing story of those who have set their lives apart for God. They have been persecuted. Jesus says, rejoice. Genuine believers, rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. You may die, but great is your reward in heaven. 
in heaven. Friends, life will be difficult for many believers. Life has been difficult for many believers. I think it is very likely that it is going to get more difficult for believers, even in our culture, which is why so many will choose not to be chosen out of the world, right? To say, I'm not really chosen out of the world by Jesus. I thought I was, but I don't want this anymore. I want to do what I want to do. It's hard to hold fast for a long period of time, isn't it? That's a hard thing to do. And listen, so many of you have children, parents, brothers, and sisters who do not know Christ, and your hearts are broken over that, as they should be. It's not easy, this, this trek that we're on in Christ. I have biological brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ utterly. My father went to his grave rejecting Christ. There's no joy in that. My hope is in Christ. It's not in everybody else's decisions in this world and not even on my decisions. Jesus has chosen me out of the world. Praise God. And now he's warned me. and said, this isn't an easy trek. But I'm with you on it and you're my friend. And I've laid down my life for you. And it makes it worth it. It makes it all worth it. One more passage, I promise, and then we're done from Mark's gospel. There's one more warning to us. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end, what? Will be saved. Endure to the end, friends. Stand fast with your brother, Jesus, and accept whatever comes your way on account of your allegiance to his name. Amen? Amen. Amen.